Welcome back to The Reeducation. Today we are talking about special counsel John Durham's failure to win a conviction in the two jury trials he has brought as part of the investigation into the FBI's probe of Donald Trump's campaign and Russia. My guest is former U.S. attorney Andrew McCarthy, who is now a writer at National Review and a contributor at Fox News. The real public interest here was being served by exposing the full extent of, of uh, the corruption that was involved in the Russia Gate and the abuse uh, by the FBI in that whole episode. And I think uh, Durham is going to get a report out that's going to lay out all the facts. You just heard from former Attorney General William Barr speaking on Fox News after an Eastern District of Virginia jury acquitted Igor Donchenko of four charges of lying to the FBI. It was a blow to the retiring U.S. Attorney John Durham in his last case as a prosecutor. Durham's work has been watched closely by both sides of the Russiagate debate. For the FBI's defenders in the elite media, John Durham is a partisan, doing the bidding of Donald Trump and his corrupt attorney general. As for Trump's many fans, Durham was supposed to punish the FBI for doing the bidding of the Democratic Party when the Bureau relied on opposition research paid for by Hillary Clinton's campaign in the investigation into her opponent. Here is Peter Strzok, the former FBI senior official who oversaw the investigation into Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump during the 2016 election, responding to Barr's comments on MSNBC. Well, my belief is that, you know, former Attorney General Barr's concept of justice is more appropriate in the totalitarian regime than it is in the United States. You don't bring—look, they arrested two people. Igor Danchenko and Michael Sussman were arrested, had their liberty deprived, were brought to trial, were facing jail. Also, Bill Barr could get out talking points favorable to Donald Trump. That's not what we do in the United States. Barr went—was egregiously famous for cutting deals for all of— you know, Trump's favorites, whether it was Roger Stone and reducing his sentence, whether it was walking back Mike Flynn's guilty, twice guilty plea, but to then take that additional step and actually start targeting opponents of the regime. I mean, this is stuff out of a, you know, out of an authoritarian regime that I would never have expected to see. And for Barr to be comfortable going on Fox News days ago and say, well, this was all all right. All these things were just, you know, detailed. So, you know, they, they were acquitted, whatever happened to their lives, whatever legal bills they had, it doesn't matter because there's going to be a mm. report. That's bull. I, and it's, it has no place in the United States. Peter Strzok here is giving a misleading history of the sordid Russgate scandal. It's true, for example, that Barr ordered a review by an independent U.S. attorney into the investigation of Michael Flynn. But it was the attorney, Jeffrey Jensen, the U.S. attorney, who determined that the charges to which Flynn initially pleaded and later revoked his plea should have never been brought in the first place. I recommend my cover story from 2020, The Railroading of Michael Flynn in Commentary Magazine, for more on this. But to summarize, the FBI agents investigating Flynn in 2016 recommended by the end of the year that the probe should be closed for lack of evidence and did not think Flynn was lying to them in the interview they conducted with him on his third day as National Security Advisor. As for the sentencing of Roger Stone that Peter Strzok talks about, the actual judge presiding over that trial, no fan of Donald Trump or Roger Stone, actually ended up agreeing with Barr's sentencing over the recommendations of the prosecutors. Now, all of that aside... There is a sliver of a point here that Peter Strzok and other defenders, I guess you could say, of the FBI are making, and that is that it's strange, to say the least, that John Durham brought cases against two 
relatively minor figures in the broader FBI scandal. An attorney for Clinton's campaign and former FBI lawyer who worked on cyber issues, his name was Michael Sussman, and Igor Danchenko, of course, the Russian national and Washington-based researcher who collected most of the intelligence that found its way into the Steele dossier. Durham's theory of the case for both of these trials was that these two individuals, Sussman and Danchenko, hoodwinked the FBI, and yet Durham's actual indictments and the evidence that he brought in both of these cases demonstrate that it was the FBI, and later the special counsel team of Robert Mueller, that were the real hoodwinkers. I should say, occasionally, the Justice Department will put out detailed press releases on people who are arrested or detained that end up never being tried in a courtroom. The Justice Department and the FBI have notoriously been leak-prone, to say the least. Anonymous will whisper to reporters derogatory information about the targets of investigations, a practice that is technically illegal, but is almost never prosecuted, particularly when it comes to FBI officials who have done the leaking. And even Robert Mueller brought what are called talking indictments, which are written for the audience of public opinion to get certain facts on the record and to sort of put in place a narrative about the particular trial. All that said, I have never heard of a U.S. attorney bringing two loser cases to trial in order to get evidence on the public record against another institution, in this case the FBI, that's not being prosecuted at all. In fact, the closest example that I can think of is from the movies. In the very underrated 1996 film Sleepers, where four friends growing up in Hell's Kitchen are sent to a horrible reform school in upstate New York, and while they are there, they are tortured and sexually abused. Several years later, after the boys are grown, two of them who are in the street gang known as the Westies run into one of their tormentors, a guard by the name of Noakes, who has been played in this film by Kevin Bacon, at a neighborhood bar, and then they proceed to murder him. Now, when the two boys go to trial, one of the boys who was in this group who went to the reform school is the district attorney who's prosecuting the case, and he conspires with the neighborhood mafia don, another friend who works at the New York Post, and a favorite priest played by Robert De Niro to throw the case. In the process, the prosecutor presents evidence in the court that the murder victim, this guy Noakes, played by Kevin Bacon, was a serial sexual abuser when he worked at this reform school. Anyway, here's a scene where the defense attorney, played by Dustin Hoffman, star-studded cast, questions a character witness brought by the prosecution who worked with the murder victim in this case when they were both at the reform school. Questioning better lead somewhere having to do with this case. Oh, Your Honor. For your sake. Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Ferguson, was there ever any sexual abuse at the Wilkerson home for boys? Was there ever any sexual abuse at the Wilkinson home for boys? Yes, I heard that there was. I'm not asking what you heard. I'm asking what you saw. Well, that makes for great cinema but it also makes for terrible criminal justice. At the same time, I have no tolerance for the umbrage from the likes of Mr. Strzok and others in the cavalcade of former FBI and Justice Department officials who are now ubiquitous on CNN and MSNBC and have been crowing for the last few days since Storm lost his last case. For one, 
I actually think that Danchenko and Sussman really did lie to the FBI and that the reason that they were acquitted was because they were pushing on an open door. The FBI leaders wanted to believe the tall tales told about Donald Trump in the Steele dossier that Danchenko collected on a trip to Moscow in 2016, and they wanted to believe the garbage white paper that Mr. Sussman provided the FBI's general counsel at the time, Jim Baker. And we know this today because of the extraordinary evidence that John Durham has brought during his losing trials. So let's recap. When Sussman brought Baker this white paper that alleged a suspicious link between Trump organization computer servers and computer servers with a Russian bank known as the Alpha Bank, the Justice Department wouldn't even share with their own investigators at the FBI Sussman's identity. The FBI claimed in the documentation opening this, or the senior people who opened it, the case that it was generated from a tip that came from the Justice Department as opposed to a lawyer working for the Clinton campaign, who was in turn working with a tech executive, someone named Rodney Jaffe, who wanted a job in a future Clinton administration. When the investigators looked at the information and concluded that it was all garbage, headquarters instructed the agents who looked at this white paper to still keep the probe open and treat it as a counterintelligence investigation instead of one dealing with cybercrime. Back in October of 2016, right before seeking a surveillance warrant on the low-level Trump advisor Carter Page, the FBI offered Christopher Steele a million dollars if he could corroborate anything in the dossier that had been developed for the Clinton campaign, and he was now giving to the FBI. He could not, and that's important because it's clear evidence that the information was not verified, and nonetheless, the FBI presented the Steele dossier to the Secret Surveillance Court. Anyway, when Danchenko denigrated that information in the dossier, saying it was overblown and based on rumors and, you know, wasn't totally solid, the FBI told the court that the source of the dossier was open and truthful in an interview without mentioning that this source, the subsource, Igor Danchenko, had disavowed much of what was in the dossier. And while people like Peter Strzok will say that the investigation into the Trump campaign was open because of information independent of the dossier, and that's true, we learned from the Justice Department Inspector General that the Bureau relied on the dossier to get the surveillance warrant for Page, and it used the dossier as key evidence in 2017, even after Mueller took over the investigation. In fact, James Comey, when he was the director of the FBI, fought internally to include the information from the Steele dossier in an intelligence community assessment of the Russian interference and hack of the Democrats that was prepared at the very end of the Obama administration, and he did so over the objections of CIA analysts. All of this at the time, unverified, and at least in January, was about to be sort of largely debunked. What's more, as the FBI and the Mueller team investigated this dossier, it was very clear that at least the Mueller team attorneys were uninterested in pursuing its partisan origins, such as the role that was played by Democratic operative named Charles Dolan, who also happened to be an unregistered foreign lobbyist for Russia. And that's important because Andrew Weissman, who was one of the senior attorneys on the Mueller team, charged or threatened to charge a number of Trump associates with violations of this foreign agent's law despite the fact that the law itself had not been criminally prosecuted for decades in any sort of serious way. And I should say, in the trial of Danchenko, it came out from the prosecution from Durham's side that there were FBI analysts at the time who were working with the Mueller team 
that wanted to investigate this Charles Dolan guy and open an investigation into him, and they were rejected by the senior attorneys on the Mueller team. Finally, the leaks about an ongoing counterintelligence investigation into Trump, which were partial information and his campaign that came out at the very beginning of Trump's presidency, crippled his presidency for the first two and a half years. And even as the FBI was gathering evidence that disproved these tall tales about Trump engaged in a conspiracy with Russia, the FBI and the Justice Department did nothing to correct the public record, letting the slander generated by Clinton's campaign to linger. For example, the FBI made Danchenko a confidential informant, paying him to assist the Bureau in January 2017 and then released him from the program in October 2020, a period that conveniently covers almost all of Donald Trump's presidency. As long as Danchenko was a confidential informant, the FBI could keep that information that he provided about the Steele dossier's unreliability and other things from Congress because he was a source and you're not supposed to share sources and methods. The fact that he was made a source, even though the FBI never resolved an earlier investigation into Danchenko for being a possible Russian agent in 2009 and 2010, is also quite fishy. All of that comes out as a result of Durham's prosecution. Now, I have to say, this is, in my view, a stain on the FBI's reputation. But the reputations of the senior officials responsible for these deceptions are undamaged, in large part because the Democratic Party and the media outlets that are close to the Democrats, still believe it was okay to violate norms and rules in order to stop the greater threat, Donald Trump. Now, what I don't understand is that now that we know that Donald Trump did not conspire with Russia in 2016, which is what the Mueller report concludes, even though it includes lots of extraneous information that's very suggestive, but they did not prosecute it, and that the paranoid and lunatic response to his election victory was ginned up largely by a dirty political trick from Hillary Clinton's campaign in the form of the Steele dossier. Well, I guess what I don't understand is why all of this outrage and indignation is aimed at John Durham. It's fair to ask the question I asked in the monologue earlier. Why bring loser cases against bit players when the real wrongdoers are in the FBI? Totally fair. But one also must acknowledge that John Durham has amassed devastating evidence against the integrity, professionalism, and honesty of the senior FBI officials who ran the investigation into the Trump campaign. These people were not resisting Trump. They were enabling him by turning a corrupt, lying bully into a victim. Peter Strzok, Jim Comey, Andrew McCabe, and others helped stoke a moral panic that reverberates in our political culture to this day. They are not your heroes. Well, the re-education today is 
really lucky to have our second return guest, Annie McCarthy, former U.S. attorney who prosecuted the 1993 World Trade Center bombing case, also a contributor to National Review, contributor to Fox News, but in my view, really the must-read when it comes to all things legal, particularly legal national security. Annie McCarthy, thank you so much for coming back on the program. Eli, it's my pleasure. Great to be here. Okay. Well, I had you on because we got the verdict in the Igor Danchenko case. He was the main subsource for the Steele dossier. He was initially charged with five counts of lying to the FBI, got whittled down to four, and he was acquitted from all four. And that would make that would make Durham 0 for 2 in his trials so far. And it looks like this is going to be the last one. You've I, I read your column on this, and you know, we've both covered it very closely. So my question is, should we look at John Durham's work here as a failure, a dud? Well, I think it's impossible to say that, Eli, even on its face, if nothing else happened, it would be a disappointment, but it wouldn't be a failure in, in the sense that we have gotten valuable information out of the trials. But I think, you know, the main event here has always been the final report. And I, I, you know, my question for Durham all along has been these these defendants who he chose to indict. I, I don't want to say that their alleged offenses were insignificant because I've, I'm usually a, a Nazi as far as, you know, people lying to the FBI and lying to investigators is concerned. I always think that <clears throat> if you're lucky enough to in this world to live in a country where you have a right to not speak to the FBI, that if you speak to them, you need to tell the truth. So I don't, I'm not in the same place a lot of commentators are about the problems. I think there's formal problems and structural problems with some of these false statements cases, but I don't, I'm not against the false statement prosecution principle. So I don't want to trivialize the offense. But I do think that these defendants were bit players. And it was really because his report is so important historically in terms of its being the only accountability we're likely to get, it was a real calculated risk for him to bring these cases against very low-level offenders on kind of tangential stuff. I mean, if you look at these two prosecutions, Eli, yeah, it didn't even matter in the in the Danchenko case whether the dossier was true or false. I mean, that's how bad. That's how. That's how tangential this is. This was like lying about sources. And in, con in connection with one of the counts, it was lying about sources for nonsense, you know, stuff right. that we all read in the paper about Manafort getting blown out of the, out of the Trump campaign. So I, I just think that because the report is so important, it had to be clear to, to Durham, who's a sophisticated guy and has been around the block more than once, that he was going to have a very uphill climb even if he had had a strong case in front of juries in Washington, D.C., in the Eastern District of Virginia, there's a very high chance that there are going to be acquittals here. And his critics are going to use the acquittals as fodder to dismiss his ultimate report. So I, I, I just question whether it was wise to bring these cases in the first place. Well, I want to ask you, is it unusual for a prosecutor to bring a case in order to make public evidence against, say, like another party like the FBI. Has that happened before? 
I mean, I, I, if I could, it happened in a movie called Sleepers in the 1990s where, you know, these two members of the Westies were prosecuted in order to, like, expose the abuse at this boys' prison in the 1960s. But I can't remember a time in real life when, why not just charge, if you don't think you could charge the FBI, then don't do anything and just write the report. But that's what I don't get. So, so it's a very interesting question, and I'm, I'm probably a good person to ask it to because I'm like a Rudy Giuliani-trained assistant from the 1980s. Yeah. And we had a lot of high-profile cases and a philosophy in the office about that there's a way that you bring high-profile high cases, and that is you don't sit around and let the media and the defense lawyers kick the crap out of your case for weeks and weeks and weeks before you get to trial – what you do is where you have legitimate reason to do it, you file things on the record, whether they're motions or letters or whatever, to get things on the public record that will enable the government's defenders out in the media to have you know, things to use to, to defend themselves against the, or to defend the government against the charges and accusations that are being made against it. So- what I would say is I've never heard of anyone bringing a trial for the principal purpose of getting information out into the public domain. And I don't see why it would be sensible to do it because there's so many ways to do it without going to trial and, and getting your mm -hmm. head handed to you. You know, you could do this. For example, you can arrest somebody. You can lay out a long narrative of what the offense was. And then you can dismiss the charges. You know, you don't have to go to trial and get acquitted. You can come up with a reason to dispose of the case. So there are ways of getting this information out there without doing what, what Durham did. And the other thing, Eli, I think we can't look at this case without considering the Sussman case. Yeah. And I think the improvement, aside from the fact that Durham was in court trying the case himself this time instead of relying on subordinates right. who I don't think were as talented as he is, but I think the thing that they – the improvement in the presentation was I was very critical of the Sussman case the way it was presented because I thought that they, they, they portrayed the FBI as a dupe and as a victim, whereas this time around – I always thought the only way you could win a case like this, and it's still an uphill case, but at least you give yourself a chance, is to say to the jury, we're not here to defend the FBI, and to put out all the bad stuff, all the warts in the case, and look the jury in the eye at the end and say, you may not like what the FBI did here, I don't like what the FBI did here, but it doesn't mean that this guy is not guilty of the lies that he told. Again, I think you know he had a at best, a 30% chance of winning this case. But at least you give yourself a chance if you do that. I think with Sussman, the, he really his case really got hurt by virtue of the fact that they tried to present the FBI in a benign light, beginning with relying so heavily on James Baker's testimony. And then it must have been shocking to the jury uh, as the trial went on to see the lengths to which FBI headquarters went to conceal the fact, even from their own investigators, that they had gotten the information from Sussman, even to the point of lying in the opening documents and claiming that the information had come from the Justice Department. So, yeah, I, I, I just think, I, you know, I think they did a better job this time. They took a better approach, but it was still a weak case. And you have to ask why they brought it.
I mean, I, I guess we can't possibly, we don't know everything that Durham knows, but should he have tried former FBI officials or current FBI officials? Is there some sort of, you know, was there a reason why he didn't do that? That it's, those are harder cases or that, you know, that has to be dealt with through the office of professional responsibility or something like that. Well, then there was no point in doing this in the first place, right? Because Horowitz did a very thorough investigation. And I really think, you know, if you want to go back to where this really started to go wrong, Hmm. I really think in the prosecution of Kleinsmith, which of all the cases that he actually charged, I think the Kleinsmith case was the most significant because that's an FBI lawyer who doctored a document and made a false statement under circumstances where they he knew that information was being relied on for purposes of swearing to the truth of something in front of the in front of the FISA court. And I thought it was very bad. And I said it at the time. And I don't like saying this because I know and like John Durham personally, I think highly of him. I think he's a very honorable guy, total straight arrow. But, you know, Klein Smith took the position in his guilty plea allocution that, yes, what I said was inaccurate, but I didn't mean to mislead anyone. And I have to say, if I'm the prosecutor in that case, I say, no deal, I'll see you in court. To say that I lied, but I didn't really lie, or I lied, but I didn't me- really mean to deceive anyone, is, is not something a government prosecutor should let, especially an FBI defendant, get away with. And I just think Durham apparently wanted to, to ring up the plea, and he thought you know getting the guilty plea was the most important thing. But the signal it conveyed to the court was that the case was kind of frivolous, you know, that yet, yeah, he gave some inaccurate information, but nobody really meant to put something over on the court. And, you know, the other dynamic that was going on there at the time is that the guy who happened to catch the the Kleinsmith case was Boesberg, James Boesberg, the the judge who's a chief judge of the FISA court at the time. And I think that, you know, I, I, because I'm opposed to FISA and I think it's a terrible idea from, from soup to nuts, and we can talk about that if you want to, but yeah. because I think FISA is such a terrible idea, I've, I've, I've been very critical of it. I was when I was a prosecutor who was, you know, in the position of deriving stuff from FISA. I never did a FISA case because I was on the criminal side, not the national security side. But I think at that point, it was so scandalous what had happened with the FBI and the FISA court when, you know, the investigation that they did at the FISA court's insistence after Russiagate exploded, where they found that it wasn't just Russiagate that was the problem. There were systematic problems with the way they do FISA. I think that, you know, there's a lot of people in Washington who are very invested in FISA and the FISA judges are among them. And they really want to show that this system works. So I think that Boesberg had a powerful motive to agree with the defense position on the case that, yeah, he gave a misstatement, but it, it, let's not suggest that there's a, you know, a fundamental problem with the FISA system. Well, if I uh, could, taking a step back, Kleinsmith's errors, I mean, and just to re- tell the listeners, he changed the meaning from a, a communication from the CIA about Carter Page, who was the subject of the FISA surveillance, right. to mean that he was not a source when, in fact, the CIA was saying that he was a helpful source. So he changed this information 
that was presented to the to to the court to make it seem like Carter Page was not had not helped his country when in fact he had, and that is a significant deception. Yeah, on and the also, just to flush it out, under circumstances where some of the contacts that the that Carter Page was having with Russians that he was reporting to the CIA, the bureau was using that as evidence that he was a clandestine agent of Russia. Right. And it's even stranger because Carter Page had cooperated with the FBI in an earlier case in which he was recorded or they they recorded Russian agents in New York talking about Carter Page. So get leaving that aside. But that was, in my view, now that we have the full picture of what was done in these FISA applications, that's the least of it. They offered Christopher Steele, the person who put together the Steele dossier, whose firm Orbis put it together, a million dollars to confirm and corroborate the allegations in the dossier. And they did that before they asked for the FISA warrant. And then they, and that's supposed to be verified information. And, that, and as you've pointed out, that is by definition not verified. And then when they found out from Danchenko, the primary subsource, that a lot of the dossier was, was BS, they never told the FISA court that the main subsource had undermined it. That strikes me as far more egregious than what Kleinsmith did, as bad as what Kleinsmith did. And yet, I don't know, has anyone been punished for that? No, and, and I would I would go further than that, Eli. I would you know, what they tell the judge, you know, just to set the the stage as you've done with this, you know, they go they they offer Steele this million bucks to corroborate, which means obviously it's not verified. Then they go to the FISA court twice before they talk to the main guy, Danchenko, who's the main source. Right. I think that's preposterous because Steele was a, a paid FBI informant at the time. They could have made him tell them who his sources were. I keep reading that, you know, the FBI couldn't get his, you know, couldn't identify who the source was. Ridiculous. Of course they could have gotten the sources. Even like you throw them in the grand jury and you ask them who the sources are. I mean, it's not, it, this isn't rocket science how you do this. But- you know, put aside that before they accused the the major party candidate for the presidency and then the sitting president of being a clandestine agent of Russia four times under oath, right? But right. the first two times they did it. Then they talked to, to Danchenko before they do the third one. They talked to him first in January after they've done the second one. Now, I point right. this out. They don't go back for the third one until April. But the rules of the FISA court require that if you learn that you've presented information that was inaccurate or unreliable, you are obliged to go back promptly to correct the record. They never correct the record. And then in April, when they go back to the FISA court, they not only don't correct the record, they represent to the FISA court that in an effort to further corroborate Steele, they spoke to Danchenko, his number one source, P.S., further corroborate him. He was never right. corroborated in the first one. Right. And then they say they found Danchenko to be cooperative and truthful, and they leave it at that. And they never tell the court that what he was cooperative and truthful about was that Danchenko was full of shit. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, so any any judge reading that is going to say, oh, OK, well, they they obviously they further corroborated the guy and they wouldn't be telling us he was cooperative and truthful unless what they're telling us is they corroborated him. And it was exactly the opposite. It's just really outrageous. 
Now, I want to I want to take another step back here, and it's one of the things you'll hear from. I mean, there there's a significant group in the conversation in Washington that will say the right is obsessed with the Steele dossier, but the Steele dossier really was not that important to the overall investigation. And I tell that to, to Mike Hart. Well, and I used to think that that was true. And now I'm, I don't think it's true at all based on the fact that, A, other than, I guess, Paul Manafort, who, who was fired as the, as, the, as the campaign manager, and his you know, sending some polling data to a former deputy of his who is suspected of being an FSB agent. We can talk about that later. What was the other information besides the allegations in the Steele dossier that would have justified continuing to keep open investigation into the sitting president who was just elected. And I have yet to see it. And then we find out in this trial of Danchenko that there were a team of analysts just looking at the Steele dossier. And yet when the analysts wanted to look into one of the sources who was a leading Democrat named Charles Dolan, the, the prosecutors, the Andrew Weissman, whoever it was in the Mueller team, decided not to do that. They didn't want to, they didn't want to do that, but they would pursue other things, even though FBI analysts and investigators were saying, we've looked into Michael Flynn and we're telling you this is not a thing. You know, it didn't check out. Why are we continuing to do it? So that to me, again, I know that Horowitz did not find that there was any bias in opening the investigation. And it was properly predicated, but that strikes me as that you've got a lot of partisans there who's only looking to see what they want to see. Yeah, let me let me just say a couple of things about Horowitz, who, by the way, said that the the dossier was significant and and for the FISA. material to the FISA. Yes, right, absolutely, so, right. You know, Horowitz, who looked at this harder than anyone other than perhaps Durham, certainly thought that it was material. The second thing I would say before I circle back to Horowitz is Comey tried very hard to get the Steele dossier information into the FBI's assessment of Russia's interference in the 2016 election. And that they that ended up in that negotiation where they wouldn't put it in the report, but it right. was in an annex. Remember that? There would be no reason for the Bureau to put to try to, so hard to get that in there unless they really wanted it in there because they had reason to think they were going to be called on it eventually. And they wanted to be able to say that the CIA and the rest of the intelligence community relied on it as well. So if this thing and was, we know the CIA said, hold off this. We don't trust this document. Right. We know yeah, that. Well, that's what that's what they said when uh, that's what they said in the end. Once it was clear yeah. that it was, you know, that it was bogus. I'm not sure that was where Durham was, uh, where Brennan was coming from at the beginning when I think he was pushing this thing along more. Than, I, I, there was a Senate um, report that it said CIA analysts who looked at it had, had did not want it in the actual report, which is why they settled on the annex thing. But yeah, point yeah, it doesn't mean yeah. Brennan didn't want it in. Didn't mean, yeah, but, the director probably did want it. Yeah. But the, the other thing I would say about Horowitz, because the Democrats often misrepresent in a very subtle way what his findings were. He did say the investigation was not improperly predicated, but he also qualified that the reason for that is to open the kind of investigation they open, their own standards don't require much more than a hunch. So it's not, right. you know, they, they frequently like to say, you know, the inspector general looked at this and he found this to be a totally properly predicated investigation. And they don't tell you that you don't need anything basically for, for predication. The second thing is, and I think this was a kind of a, a wormy conclusion by Horowitz, who also is an old friend of mine and I don't take any joy in 
in criticizing him either, but it is what it is. What Horowitz said was there was immense evidence of political bias, and he laid it out in chapter and verse. But what he also said was that with respect to any particular decision, he couldn't say for sure that the decision was driven by bias and that if there was a potentially legitimate reason or a potentially illegitimate reason, the Bureau was entitled to a presumption of regularity. And I thought, you know, number one, that was fairly interesting because Trump didn't get a presumption of regularity. But <laughs> right. uh, you know, Bar uh, Horowitz's take on all this was, yes, it was terrible, but, you know, they may have had legitimate reasons for what they did, too. And since we can't read people's minds and we don't know whether they did it because they were biased or otherwise. Now, I, to my mind, that would not be what you do in a jury trial. In a jury trial, you would say to a jury, look at this pile of bias evidence I'm giving to you and look at all these irregular things that they did that they wouldn't do in any other case and use right. your common sense. But that's not the way Horowitz did it. Now I want to talk a little bit about FISA. And there, and you, 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 you pointed out that after Horowitz looked at the Carter Page FISAs, he wanted to look at other FISAs to see if this was a common problem. What he found was that there was a procedure which was developed in 2000, 2001 called the Woods Procedure after a series of other scandals in the late 1990s having to do with the FISA court, which required the FBI to create a separate file that would have all of the factual information in the surveillance warrant that you could look for and you could see it was verified. These are the facts. This is why we know it. And by the way, here's also like the, you know, us kind of the best argument against what we were having to say to be super scrupulous. I think what is it? The standard was like, you have to be extra scrupulous or something like that in your extraordinary. Uh, uh, I forget what the, but you, it, it, extraordinary level of verification, but yes. Right. right. And so this was a reform after another series of scandals before 9-11. And for 20 years, everybody insisted, well, wait a second, the Woods procedure makes it almost impossible to game the FISA court. And now we've, we've seen the FISA court clearly was deceived. And we're looking at it. And they find out, lo and behold, that a lot of the time FBI agents either ignore the Woods procedures or they're incomplete or... There are errors in it. And then there was this fight between Horowitz. If you read his, his, his reports, he says, it's a really big deal. I'm actually concerned because the Justice Department would then say, yeah, we looked at it and the errors were not material. They weren't really significant. So why are you making such a big deal out of it? And there's a lot of confusion on this. So maybe just where do we stand on this? Should we be more concerned or did Horowitz maybe overstate it that they were just you know, typographical errors. And by the way, it's not good for the FBI if it turns out that the Woods errors are not a big deal most of the time, but they were clearly a big deal in the in the Carter Page FISA. It means that it looks like that's more evidence that Carter Page's FISA process was, was politicized. But leaving that aside, should we be concerned that the reforms from 20 years ago were meaningless? Yeah. Yes. Well, you, well, look, it, here. It, let me put my cards on the table here so that people can evaluate this for what it's worth. But I'm a, I don't think there should be FISA at all. I think it's a ridiculous system. So to my mind, you're always going to be patching it like this because it can't right. work. So with that is, with that is where I'm coming from. First of all, 
they have they have watered down the understanding or the concept of verification to the point where it it does not it would not reflect what the normal person thinks verified means so for example if i know that christopher steele is a complete you know a liar and a bellisher a fabricator or, or or what have you if he tells me that michael cohen went to prague and even i even though i know he's that steel was not reliable, I now have verification. Now, did I prove that Michael Cohen went to Prague? No, but I have a witness who's who's willing to say it. Does it matter that uh, that you know the witness is incredible? It would matter to me. I think it would matter to most people. So I think when most people hear that the FBI files what they call verified petitions or verified applications to the FISA court, what they think that means is that the Bureau went out and corroborated the information before and was satisfied in its own mind that it was more than likely true before mm -hmm. giving it to the FISA court. When in fact, I think their position on verification is if they have someone who's willing to say it, or if they have a document that is willing to, that, that the manages to reflect it, even if the evidence we're talking about and the testimony we're talking about is not reliable, that's good enough for verification. So I think ah. to begin with, they have a very low level view of what verification means. Now, lard on top of that, the fact that in the FISA applications that they found, I agree with you, by the way, that they had a number of errors that it was so systematically erroneous that the errors run the spectrum of the trivial to the serious. Right. And you know, so that anybody who wanted to cherry pick could make arguments for whatever position they wanted to make. But I do think that it's 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 of significance that there were num there were a number of material facts that were not that the verification was not in the FISA in the Woods file. Right. And there were some cases where the Woods file was missing, where they claimed it was missing, and the suggestion from them was, well, it's missing. Not that we didn't do it in the first place. And I remember reading that and saying, isn't this highly classified information? Like if if a file is missing, isn't that like a thing? Like, you know, doesn't that, <laughs> right. mean, doesn't that mean like classified information is missing and maybe we better account for it? Like if it was down in Mar-a-Lago, they would, you know, they they sure. try to figure out where the hell it was, right? So I, I just think that, and it's important to recognize that as you pointed out, the reason they put this Woods procedure in in the first place was because of the scandals they had in the 90s. And I just think that, you know, the fundamental problem here, if I can just get on my FISA soapbox yeah. for a second, is that the collection and verification of and, and oversight of intelligence collection and intelligence anal analysis is a political function of the government. And when I say political, I'm not talking about partisan politics. I'm talking about like the division of labor in our constitutional government, right? right? It's an executive function that can only be overseen by Congress. And the judicial branch is the apolitical branch, which we insulate from politics. The collection of intelligence is not a judicial function. And, right. and now we're talking specifically now about 
foreign counterintelligence. I'm not talking about domestic intelligence. And part of the reason we have this cockamamie FISA is that that distinction was lost. The Supreme Court decided a case in the 70s called United States against United States District Court, the Keith case, which was about domestic terrorism. And what what they basically said was that you can't, when you're dealing with, there's so much tie-in between dissent and violent protests right. that you can't disaggregate the two. And as a result, you know, you're dealing with people who have Fourth Amendment rights. The government can't, because they're American citizens and they're presumed innocent, the government can't just do national security wiretaps on Americans for activity in the United States. You can argue whether that's good law, bad law, whatever, it's the law. But what the what the Congress did when and in the post-Watergate era, and after all the spy scandals, when they wanted to do FISA, is they used the Keith case as their model for something that the Keith case was was explicitly not addressing, which was foreign counterintelligence involving people who don't have Fourth Amendment rights, mainly people who are acting overseas, but all people who are acting on behalf of foreign powers, which raises much different issues. It's not a judicial function. The, the court has no right. expertise that, You're saying that's it. like an Article II issue because it's a foreign, yeah, think, you know, look, foreigners always, recruiting American citizens to undermine the country is a question of the national defense. It's not a question of your right to direct dissent. Okay. Right. And I always talk about this this post World War II era case that that Justice Jackson wrote, where he said that you know number one judges don't have any expertise in intelligence, and they tried to answer that problem with the FISA court. They figured by if we husband all of the the intelligence questions in one court, they'll develop the expertise. Right. But the other thing Jackson said, which they can't answer and have never answered, is that. Decisions about the national security are the most important decisions that a political community makes, and they have to be made by people who answer to the people whose lives are at stake, which is never going to be the court. Yeah. And the third, Eli, just quickly, practical problem is the court has no way of investigating whether what the FBI is telling them is true. Well, as as evidenced by the fact that 99.9% of all FISA applications are approved. So it's right. and so so I mean I I I'm, I want to just push back in one respect though I mean I, and I largely would say sure. I think I you you make a persuasive case but let me just pose this as a sort of counterpoint when it when there was no judicial oversight in this process we had horrendous abuses where there were people who were surveilled by the FBI in particular for just their polit it was basically a thought crime almost because they had such you know hoover was so obsessed with i mean you could argue he did a very good job against domestic communists but it, you know anti-war protesters civil rights they 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 monitored martin luther king they you know the, you those are the bad old days and we can put yep. a lot of that on j edgar hoover but we i don't know if we put all of it on there i mean the point is that you want to have some check in there to make sure that you don't have the fbi running amok unaccountable doing what used to be called black bag jobs and breaking into offices of people who were just who really were just dissenting as opposed to like the weather underground which were not connected to a foreign government but were domestic terrorists and those i mean i think we would agree they they should be prevented 
Yeah, I, I, I'm so glad you made this point because I want to I want to emphatically agree. If the last 20, 30, well, going back to 1978, if it's taught us anything, it's that these guys have to have oversight. Yes. So the last thing I'm arguing for is that they shouldn't have oversight. What I'm saying is it shouldn't be judicial oversight because what they're doing, I, I, it's it's corrupting the court in the sense that you're bringing the court into the political exercise of gathering intelligence so that when things go wrong, the court is now, instead of being able to do what courts do, which is evaluate claims on the basis of that, the court is now basically a co-conspirator in the right. process. So this is a political process. I think it needs a political check, but I think it needs to be a robust political check. I think Congress needs to like stand up a an investigative congressional committee that does oversight on FISA applications. Well, we had that too after the, the spy scandals of the 1970s, and we ended up with Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. And I wouldn't trust Adam Schiff to to oversee, you know, a, a, a Christmas fundraiser. I mean, like this well, guy. But it's, a it's bipartisan, right? I, I mean, agree, it, it's bipartisan. But I just there's been the Congress is so dysfunctional right now. It's not. I agree with you in in principle. I'm just saying. How does that look when we have seen the people at the leading edge, really on both sides, Republicans and Democrats, who want to basically make law enforcement an arm of their political agenda? Democrats do this and so do Republicans. Well, the, if you have people like that in charge of the oversight, then we don't, we're not really getting oversight either, are we? Well, but if you have Trump and Biden as president, you know, I mean, we could yeah, do no, this I all agree. day. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I mean, my, you've, you've hit another one of my pet peeves, which is, you know, you, there's no way that you can orchestrate the org chart in a perfect way that's sure. going to overcome the human factor. You just, it, you just can't. And I agree with you about shift, but that, but look, the FISA court's a catastrophe. Yeah. I, I, I Eli, you, you read the same FISA applications that I did. They're appalling. Yes. How did how did a judge sign off on those? I mean, I know we got a lot of black marks, and like Ben Witty says that like you don't know what's under the black marks. The, you know that could be the no. But we find out more and possible. more. We find out that's right. the thing. We get drips and drabs. This is why I, I'm not getting back to Durham. Well, I I think it's valuable that we knew that he offered Steele a million dollars to try to corroborate it, and he couldn't do it, and they yes. went and said it anyway. That's very important information, you know. To, to give you just one example, right? So, yeah, and I take your point that these FISA applications are just, it's a way of almost, like, it's its like a, a ritual. It's like, you know, when we take off our shoes at the air, airport, it's we're supposedly making ourselves feel safer. And and you, look, if they sign off on 95% of them, they probably should sign off on 95% of them because most of them involve, you know, foreign actors who are foreign, Right. who don't have Fourth Amendment rights, and a court would have no basis to interfere with the government trying to collect intelligence on them. So I've never been, you know, I'm not down on the fact that they sign off like a rubber stamp. And I actually think the 95% is a little bit deceptive because in the interplay, sometimes the court sends it, you know, like you bring the court something that has 22 targets on it, and the judge says, I don't like these five. Right. Uh, and you go back and then you bring them back you know, one that has now we're only asking for 17 targets instead of and that goes down as like an approval, even though he knocked out like a bunch of I the, see what you mean, the yeah. target. 
So, so the the stats are a little bit skewed, but I don't want to pretend it's otherwise. They're essentially a rubber stamp, but they should be a rubber stamp because what they're doing is not judicial. It's a it's a executive intelligence collection process. Okay, before we go, I want to just hit on two more things really quick. I think one of the things that we've learned in this whole episode of what we call Russia Gate is that the FBI closes ranks and rarely punishes, at least now, people who get out of line. And I want to talk a little bit about Brian Auden, who is the supervisory analyst, whose name came out in the recent trial here with Donchenko, which is what we were talking about today. And what we found out is that he was being internally disciplined for his role in these FISA applications having to do with Carter Page. Well, that's good. He was appealing it. That's part of the process. But then he was sent to be in charge of another really sensitive thing, which was the Hunter Biden investigation. Another political thing, which is going to you know, be, how does that kind of thing happen? And that if you get a situation where individuals, whether it's Kevin Kleinsmith or for that matter, Andrew McCabe, the former deputy director of the FBI, or this guy, Brian Auten, and nothing happens to them, and then half of the political discourse holds them up as resistance heroes... Well, that's going to lead to ruin of an institution because an institution can only survive. The health of an institution depends on its ability to go after people who have corrupted it, right? Look, I couldn't agree more. I think the way it happened here is even – if it, if it could possibly be worse, it's worse because the way he got the gig with the, uh, the Biden information was he was brought in by this guy, Tim Thebolt. Right. Who was the head of the Washington field office who had a very active social media account that was ripping Trump, ripping Barr, ripping Republicans, asked whether we could give, was it, was it Kentucky he wanted, or Tennessee he wanted to give back? He wanted to know if he could give that to the Russians, you know, I, you know like the American South. So that, that was your head of the Washington field office who was training other FBI agents. And he's the one who brought his pal Auten in. And the whole reason for that was because the Democrats knew exactly who they should turn to at the FBI to try to undermine the information that Ron Johnson and Chuck Grassley in the Senate had been gathering, which, by the way, is not Hunter's laptop. They were getting from financial institutions suspicious right. activity reports that were filed with the Treasury Department. So, you know, the idea that there, w- there wasn't a shred of evidence that that was Russian disinformation, that's just like completely bogus and made up. But you're quite right that, and I don't know how you fix this problem. The culture here is that if it was Trump, then by any means necessary, and anything anybody did was to the good. And it's like all those guys who were, you know, weather underground terrorists who wanted to blow up and kill people in the 60s and 70s into the 80s, you know, they were all reinvented as uh, respectable academics. And when you ask about their background, it's because it was against the Vietnam War. So anything that was done, whether it was well, lawful or not. Well, it's also because not, of Mark Felt and Mark Felt's decision to surveil them and violate their constitutional rights after there was right? w- with no real authority to do so. But Yeah, but, but, you know, like, how do you make people heroes in that situation? Yeah, exactly. It's because, like, you know, the the winners write the history, right? And it's right. like they were... They were opposed to the right thing. So it doesn't matter what atrocious thing they did in furtherance of it, as long as they were on the right team. And that's a sickness. That's a cultural sickness. I don't know what you do about that. Well, I would say this, that the response to Durham's, the acquittal of Danchenko 
And the response from the so-called like sort of Democrat resistance types is very bad for the country and the institution of the FBI in the sense that there was enough bad behavior here that you can't just wave it away and not think that there needs to be some sort of reform. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the deceptions from the FBI leadership while this was while people like Devin Nunes were trying to understand what was going on before Horowitz released his report, where I mean they participated in a total snow job where you know you had people saying that there was you're, they're totally misrepresenting it. The Steele dossier is totally not important to the FISA thing, and it turns out it was. That if you have half of the one political of two political parties that are saying it's nothing to see here and that this whole thing is a joke well, then there won't be any reform. And if you don't have reform, then eventually the institution itself is not going to have democratic legitimacy because then what are the what are the Trump supporters, what are half the country going to say? They're going to say, why should I trust anything the FBI says? And that really is a disaster. I think we both agree. We need a functioning FBI that's, a, that's not political. Yeah, it's not only, I, I couldn't agree with that more. And the other thing is, if you don't fix it, what people are going to have a problem with is not just the FBI. It's the entirety of the justice system. So, you know, we're talking about one big piece of it, but you know, when I talk to people around the country, what people are on fire about more than anything else I find is the two tiered system of justice. They could, they could accept people on their own political side being prosecuted. If they thought, if they thought everybody was being given equal protection of law. But, you know, it's very obvious that the quality of justice that you get, at least in politically fraught cases, is very much controlled by what your political affiliation is. And it's not even credible to to like push back against that. That's just a fact. I mean, it's it's too it's too obvious that you it's so obvious you would take judicial notice of it in an honest judicial proceeding. So I, I think that's uh, it's not just the FBI, which badly needs reform. I mean, my. My view of it is I take their foreign counterintelligence mission away from them. We should probably do just a whole discussion of what we should do about the FBI. But we'll have you back um, for that. You'll be you'll be you'll be the first member of the three time club. <laughs> <laughs> well, but at a minimum, yeah, they have to be addressed, and there has to be. I, I think I've heard you say this. Who who did you speak to like in the last three weeks where you had a great conversation about the guy who writes about intelligence and national security? I, oh, I, Mark Hosenbaum. I, yeah. Yeah. Was it Hosenbaum? Or maybe it was Tim Naftali. So. Well, yeah, Naftali. Right. That's right. That was a great, that was a great Thank conversation. You. And I, and I completely agree that you need something like, I mean, I've never been a fan of the church hearings be, of the outcome Right. The church hearings, but you definitely need something like that. You need that has buy in like, from both parties, right? Yeah, and, and real scrutiny of that institution. And if I could just say one more thing, Eli, yeah, I know I'm like running on and on here, but what I'm very curious about having written a, a book about this a few years ago is the piece of this Russia Gate thing that I always thought was the most interesting thing was what was the role of the CIA and the foreign intelligence services? And that seems to have like disappeared in the, in, the, um, in the black hole. There's been a lot of attention to the misbehavior of a, you know, a cabal of FBI agents in the hierarchy of the FBI. But there's a big part of this, I always thought, 
that was driven, particularly in the early stages of it, late 2015, early 2016, Brennan himself has said that he was a clearinghouse to make sure that the FBI had all the information that it needed from foreign intelligence services. There's an obvious role of British intelligence that was played in this. There's the role of the Australian diplomat, which has always been very interesting. We haven't seen a word of that from Durham. And I thought it was interesting that yeah. Brennan sat down with Durham and evidently, according to the reporting, gave him an eight-hour, Brennan being the former CIA director, gave him an eight-hour interview under circumstances where Durham assured him that he wasn't a subject of the investigation. And I'm not, I don't know what the state of the evidence would be with respect to Brennan, so I'm not saying he should or shouldn't have been a subject of the investigation, but he sure, he's certainly a person of interest in my investigation. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm, I just... I kind of wonder what happened to that whole piece. That is a good question. And that's why we await, you know, Dorham's report, which is why I am not going to say that Dorham was a failure until I read his report. And we might have a situation very similar to the Mueller report, where we get a lot of information about things that were never charged. In fact, I would anticipate that. And, right. you know, and so that's important. Before we go, I want to ask about one more element of this. Similar to you, it's a thing that, like, has seemed to, kind of gone out where is there was a report that didn't get much attention it was on the claims of unmasking which is something i wrote about a long time ago when the beginning of the trump years and if you read through that report it says that that michael flynn's name when it was leaked his conversation with the russian ambassador before trump trump's inauguration that it wasn't unmasked because it was sent out beyond the FBI without his name being masked in the first place. And right. the guy who, the attorney who looked into this wrote, and that is beyond the purview of my investigation. So I don't know what to say about that, about how that name got in the press. So I say this, and normally my position as a journalist is I am pro leak and I don't like leak investigations. I don't think journalists should be prosecuted by the justice department on these sorts of things. And we may disagree on that, but I do say this, that you can abuse any kind of power. And when you leak someone's name like that, like they did with Flynn or other kinds of leaks, like the existence of a counterintelligence investigation in the Trump campaign, these are the sorts of things that are never supposed to get out and, and it politicizes the investigation and it can become a, a, a political weapon. That strikes me as the one area where we will never get any kind of nothing. I mean, there's been, I, we have no information on any investigation into how this information got out when it got out, which I think might be in the end, the biggest abuse of power in all of Russiagate, which was leaking out partial information that made Trump look like he was a Russian agent. When in fact, the information, if you looked at everything the FBI had would have told you that it, that it wasn't panning out. Yeah. Well, you know, look on the leaks, I think I've always been of the mind that I wouldn't like, discount the possibility because you can't anticipate every factual yeah. scenario that might come up. I wouldn't discount the possibility of prosecuting a journalist for a national security or a, a dissemination and national defense information, espionage act type violation. But my default position is that you should prosecute the government officials and those should be very aggressive investigations. And I don't have a problem as a last resort with with putting the journalist in the grand jury. 
if if it's a serious enough leak. If it's nonsense, I wouldn't I wouldn't bother with it. But if it was serious enough, I, you know, I wouldn't prosecute the journalist, but I wouldn't like, I, you know, the you know, problem with Fitzgerald calling right. Judy Miller as a witness in the Scooter Libby. Well, I have a problem with it because I I have a problem with that one because I don't think it should have been an investigation. Well, that's that in we the first agree place. on, yeah. But, yeah. But you know, I don't I don't think that, you know, you can't separate out the political part of this from the legal part. Yeah. And I just think that no administration with a brain is ever going to want to go to war with the media over I'm not I don't think they should go to war with the media either. My point is only this is that there was very dirty pool that was done in that transition period. Yes. And the part of the dirtiest stuff that was done was selectively leaking information that made Trump and the incoming administration look like they were guilty of things that if you had all of the information, like the transcript of the Flynn Kislyak phone calls, which we eventually got in 2019 or 2020, once you looked at the transcript, you would say, wait a second, what is this? This is not what it looked like. But if you give a little bit of the information, you can paint it as this, you know, terrible sort of thing and 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 create a frenzy. And my point is, yeah. I've changed my view because I used to be very, very much of the kind of journalist like, hey, this is a First Amendment issue, blah, you know, and I, I that's my instinct. But I would say this is an abuse of power. And if you're going to look at the abuses of power in this entire thing, you can't ignore the fact that the press played a role by writing about an ongoing investigation with inadequate information and partial information that actually led the public and created a political atmosphere that made it possible to have a special counsel and for you know the, the, the attorney general to recuse himself. And all of that was because of strategic leaks that made it seemed like there was much more smoke than there ever was in terms of this Russian Trump conspiracy. Yeah. And I, I think not only leaks, but I, I pointed out in something I wrote about uh, the Danchenko trial that when my old friend Jim Comey testified in front of a House committee in public testimony I think it was around March 17th That's or right. so of, of 20. It may, I may be wrong a few days off the date, but it was March of, of 2017. It's important to now note that the Bureau by then had interviewed Danchenko and knew beyond a fair the well that the stuff in the Steele dossier was nonsense. And that 99.9 times out of 100, the FBI's position is they won't talk about any investigation, forget about a national security investigation that's supposed to be classified. And he got up in a House hearing having to know what the effect of this would be and say said that he had been authorized by the Justice Department to uh, advise the Congress that the FBI was conducting a counterintelligence investigation of the Trump campaign's connections with Russia. And as in any counterintelligence investigation, he said, we'll evaluate at the end where the criminal charges ought to be filed, which, by the way, is not the way it generally works with counterintelligence investigations anyway. But the point is, he had to know exactly, he's too sophisticated an actor to not have known exactly what he was doing. And this was during a period of time when he was telling Trump that he couldn't publicly say that he wasn't a subject of an investigation because then 
if ever the information, if, if ever something broke where he had to make him a subject of an investigation, it would be too damaging to Trump. But in the meantime, he went out in public testimony and basically shined the light on him. Yeah, and made everybody understand that he was a subject of an investigation where they had to know there was nothing there. Right. By that point. Right. Well, I mean, that's a good place to end it because I think we're in agreement that, I mean, for whatever motivations that Jim Comey had, he is responsible for really, at the end of the day, delegitimizing the institution that he was leading with at least half the country. I don't think that's what he, I, I mean, I think what he meant to do in his heart of hearts was the opposite, but it, he's what terrible damage to the institution. I think he probably, I mean, whether he intended to or not. And again, like I am uncomfortable with some of the stuff that you'll find on the right where they want, they want to see, you know, people like Comey go to jail and they, you know, there's all these memes on Twitter and things like that. I'm uncomfortable with the same thing on the left. It's not a good place for a politics to be when there is a kind of expectation and an advocacy for using institutions like the FBI to be instruments of political vengeance, which is what we have. Except the difference is that the people who want it used as a political vengeance against the right are the legal elites, it appears, versus the people who want to yeah. use it as a political vengeance against the left are people who have no real power politically or otherwise. Yep. Amen. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Annie McCarthy. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.